Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to the programme. Between now and nine o'clock, quadrophobia, new rules for all-terrain vehicles, withdrawing gracefully when land can no longer be defended from rising water, and we are not the villains of global warming. Dairy farmers meet the leader of the Green Party. You can contact us on 51551 or countrywide at rte.ie. First, though, another stinker of a week weather-wise, not least, obviously, because of Storm Debbie. At times like these, you would really, really feel for anyone trying to live and farm in the Shannon Callows. Just look at a map of that part of the country. The catchment of the Shannon River is so big that if it rains in Boyle, County Roscommon, or in Ballinasloe, County Galway, or in Mullingar, County Westmeath, all of that water eventually ends up in the Callows. So this week, once the skies had cleared a little... I set off for County Offaly. I'm outside the village of Sharon Harbour in Offaly. And to all the world, it looks like they have just started farming swans here. For a kilometre in every direction, all I can see around me is water, except there are still the tops of fences, the tops of gates... But the only livestock to be seen here now are all of these hooper swans in the middle of what were once fields. Not surprisingly, here comes the rain again. There's a real tension in this landscape. One minute you're walking as I am right now on a pretty firm grassland and then next thing... You're up to your knees in water. There's a fight between what this place wants to be, land or waterway, or both at different times of the year. You can see where the water was up to there, the line of it. All the plaster falling off the walls, and some of your floorboards buckling there, warping. Yes. This is a depressing sight, isn't it? You tell me. Just a hundred yards down the road, I bumped into Paddy Towie, who showed me the damage from one of the recent floods. It's not good for your mental health, I'd say. She's just not sure crazy. Paddy's bigger concern now, though, was that flooding had ruined chances of putting aside any fodder for this winter. And when he had tried to sell a few cattle to buy fodder, he'd got a very bad price for them. I showed cattle last night in the mart. And because of the quality of land here, they had no weights and I got very little money for them. And that's directly as a result of the quality of the grass because it's a bit saturated. The lack of potter, yes. And I had to sell my cattle. Well, practically you give them away by father and keep the rest there. Is this sustainable? No. It may be that the price his cattle had fetched yesterday had him down just at the point I bumped into him, or that he'd actually had enough. Lunacy on our part. Crazy. And we'll probably keep on farming then. We know nothing else. Simple. No, nothing else. That must get in on you, does it? Well, you know, you'd have a not sleepless night because of it. What's the solution? Pay us to get out or do something, you know. 
Any place that more than one person gathers, there will be more than one opinion. And there are others whose land is as badly affected by the water who are determined to keep on farming. Well, this is a right of way into the callus here. There's a lot of meadow in the callus. And, um, is that a meadow or is that a lake? Well, in this winter time, it's a lake, but in the summertime, it's a meadow. John Egan raises dairy calves to beef, but he's been doing so without 40 acres of his farm underwater since the 15th of June. That hasn't dimmed his enthusiasm, though. We farming here, we want to stay farming here to produce food, you know. It's kind of needed. How difficult has it gotten? Well, it does cost money uh, when you can't go on your land. And uh, you need to make a profit. It's what we're there for. We're landowners and we want to make a profit. And we've uh, a desire to to, to farm, you know, eco-friendly farming. Like, it's, 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 it's part of what we do down here. It has been for generations, you know. John and his neighbours are proud of the work they have done with the National Parks and Wildlife Service to preserve their fields as bird habitats, something that they say is being ruined when the river floods in spring or summer now, washing eggs and fledglings away. They want to see more water let through at the weirs and the hydro stations on the Shannon and for silt to be removed by dredging. First and foremostly, the... uh the Shannon should be managed. I know there are a few pinch points there, but the Shannon water should be managed. They weren't managed this summer, in my opinion. Um, they, need to, they need to just get down to brass tacks and have a, a one body over the Shannon so that uh, it doesn't flood. And all those little birds' nests that we had, and I know were in that field that got flooded this year, and, you know, that, that shouldn't happen, like, you know. Would the river benefit from dredging? Yes, the river would benefit from dredging in places where there are pinch points and there's historically silt from Bordemona's activities that has silted it up. And if that was removed, I would say in the short term, uh, it would aid greatly. There is a big snag to dredging, though. It means that the water passes through your area more quickly, but it tends to cause even worse flooding downstream. couple of kilometres down river of Shannon Harbour at Mealick Weir, the new walkway which stretches right the way across the river and you get an idea of what it is that the Shannon wants to do in this part of the country. It splits up into five or six different channels here. It just does not want to be contained between the same two banks. It wants to be everywhere at the same time. There is another option for the Shannon Callows that's just never discussed, even though it happened here in the 1950s. But it is a political and social taboo. Managed retreat. The state steps in and relocates houses and farms to higher, drier land. The waterlogged fields become wetlands. We did it once before. And with climate change bringing only more and more flash flooding, is it time to find ways of making it one of the things that we can do again? That said, it is also divisive, unpopular, socially damaging and likely to be resisted tooth and nail. Why continue to farm here when 
trying to work this land throws 10 times more obstacles and difficulties in your way than would happen to any other landowner. Well, I like it, believe it or not. I get a great joy out of it. I get a joy out of nature, and here is more nature than a lot of other places, and we're blessed that way. And the difficulties? I mean, the fact that you end up in the red? Yeah, the, 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 you'd be climbing up the pole till you slide down a bit. Uh, we do appreciate that uh, we have a few grants coming our way, but uh, it's, it's marginal. The whole thing is marginal. You wouldn't make a living on it. What kind of stubbornness or obstinacy <laughs> is in the genes that keeps you going? I don't, I can't understand it myself, Philip, most of the time. So, on a good sunny day, I can understand it, but on a wet, wintry day, I can't. So there you go. But as the intensity of unseasonal rains grows, for every John Egan happy to keep going, there will be a Paddy Towie at his wits' ends. It's unsustainable. It can't be easy, though, to say, enough and enough, I can't do this anymore. I'm, that's where I am, yes. I'm at that point, like, it's... it's it has you be? Yes, because of the water and the way things are at the, here at the moment. Crazy. That's a very agitated Paddy Towie there. So do we do what Paddy suggested? For those who have had enough, should there be an exit strategy? The majority, including the farm organisations, want dredging and engineering and flood defences. But should we also give more consideration for doing what the Dutch call making room for the rivers? It's not popular. But we did do it, as I was saying, in the past. 1954, severe flooding on the Shannon Callows and the government of the day opted for managed retreat, giving farmers with inundated land access to new farms on better land. Dr Fia Tuberty is a geographer who has studied what happened back then. Very good morning to you, Fia. Very welcome to Countrywide. What did happen in 1954? Um, Yeah, so in December 1954, there'd been really severe flooding Along the Shannon south of Athlone, about 70 square miles in total were were underwater um, and people had to be evacuated. About 100 households had to be evacuated to um, alternative accommodation around Athlone. Um, So after that, like in the aftermath, I guess there were discussions of how uh, we could or what response could be taken to this. Um, Like in the 1940s, the state had started a programme of arterial drainage. Uh, so like embanking rivers uh, to prevent the flooding of farmland. Um, but at that point, it was decided that it wasn't feasible or worth the investment to embank the Shannon. Um, and that assessment didn't change after the flooding in 1954. There was a report by an American engineer, expert American engineer, which said, yeah, it wasn't feasible to do a big embanking project. Um, so... One of the alternatives uh, was to support people to to relocate and what we'd now call managed retreat. Um, So initially there was proposals for quite a large scale project where like about 100 households would be moved entirely out of the Shannon Callows area and what eventually transpired due to opposition um, from the people involved was a smaller scale scheme where about where six households moved kind of entirely out of the area and then 60 uh, households were provided with new homes on higher ground but in the same area so they kept their mm-hmm. existing farms. Were any of the six that moved farms, did they relocate somewhere else? Yeah, so we don't have like very detailed personal histories of 
most of the people involved, but one exception to that is um, the case of Dennis and John Hughes, um, because they were the their family was the subject of a book by a local historian, Rosaline Fallon, and so they were provided with a new new farm on better land, and in fact almost double the acreage they previously had uh, in, in the same area, in the same parish, or a different part of the country. No, sorry, near to Moat. Um, so they moved, I think that's about 50 kilometres mm-hmm, away from mm-hmm. where they were in Clonone um, and they were moved to like adjacent farms. So the family was still together. Was it popular or was there a large degree of resistance to this policy? Yeah, it's it's hard to say precisely, but there was certainly evidence of both support and opposition. Um, so like it was opposed by some people on the grounds that it would, like they didn't want to leave their homes. They didn't want to see the community broken up. Um, there's one quote from a parish priest talking about how the Shannon would be Shannon area would be transformed into a valley of death and silence if oh, the Spanish retreat programme went ahead. <laughs> um, and then there was also opposition seemingly from kind of larger farmers and their political representatives who were opposed to this programme of land reform and land redistribution, which this project was part mm-hmm. of. Um, but then there's also evidence of support, including from smaller farmers and their representatives, including particularly Jack McQuillan, who was a TD for Clonna Publica, um, and also like people like John, John, this guy, John Hughes, who ended up moving to Moat. He was a real keen advocate. What is interesting, though, is that something that is almost a taboo to discuss now was common currency was constantly cropping up in dull debates throughout the 20s, 30s and 40s. And then that changed. Yeah, yeah. So I guess to give some context or explain how the Shannon scheme came about, like this came about because of the operations of the Land Commission. And so the state body, which had been set up to... uh, Reapportion land, yeah. Reapportion land, yeah. Break up estates and reapportion land. But one of their modes of operation was what they called uh, migration schemes, whereby small farmers, mostly in the west of Ireland, would be provided with new farms, more land and generous subsidies, sometimes nearby to where they were originally, but sometimes the other side of the country. And these were often very enthusiastically taken up because of what it provided in terms of welfare. So you're saying that there was a mechanism, there was a state agency there to move people from one part of the country to the other, which would be a piece of administrative infrastructure we just don't have today, really. Yeah, exactly. This was a familiar idea. It was quite popular with a lot of the people involved, like... Uh, thousands of people or thousands of households were moved around the country through this mechanism. So the expertise was there, the framework was there. And as I say, it was a familiar idea to people. You listen to voices like John Egan's, though, in that report, and you can see that that attachment to land, to place, to community runs really, really very deep. A policy like this were to be introduced today would have a big uphill struggle to gain acceptance. Yeah, um, yeah. And like managed retreat is something that we're seeing discussed as a possible response to climate change in Ireland to some extent, but also more widely. Um, But like this is a core tension which arises that at a basic level, people often don't want to leave their homes. They don't want to leave their communities, the places they're uh, familiar with. Um, Like one response to this is that in the US, for instance, there's been programs where people kind of move collectively. So that means Mm. it kind of tries to address the issues in terms of breaking up the community. Um, Obviously, in the Shannon example, what they did was just people moved house to higher ground. So they didn't actually leave the 
area kind of wholesale. So that's one kind of compromise option that might work in some cases now. Um, and then as well, like there's just the issue that like climate change itself is going to really change our yes. landscapes. Um, and I suppose the key thing there is the clue is in the name. We do managed retreat in a managed and orderly way now, or we have to respond chaotically in the future to the floods that we know will come. Yeah, exactly. Like we're already seeing people being displaced by climate change around the world. Um, and I think it's fair that we should provide them or ensure they have somewhere safe to go to. And also like in Ireland and elsewhere, there's examples where people have been flooded and they're actively looking for supports okay. to move elsewhere. And I think that that should be accommodated. Well, it should be an option. It should be something, a tool in the toolbox, as they say, and not um, something that is mandatory or compulsory. Dr. Fia Tuberty, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Just coming up to 29 minutes to nine o'clock. A Tuberty on RTE Radio 1 in the morning again. I bet you didn't have that on your bingo card for today. Email countrywide at rte.ie. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. 51551 for your texts. Big question. Can farmers and environmentalists learn to be friends? One that's been repeated frequently during the course of recent debates. And one that the Dairy Farmers representative body, the ICMSA, tackled at its AGM yesterday when they extended an invitation to Minister Eamon Ryan to become the first ever Green Party leader to address them. And he said... Yes, there were other politicians there saying all the right things to woo the farming vote, but they weren't topping the bill. Um, look, there's been, there's been an awful lot of climate shaming uh, of farmers, um, and I think that's unfair, quite frankly. Um, and I think it's counterproductive. Um, when, you, when you try to shame people, you don't get them on side, you get their backs up. And I think a lot of what's been done in terms of blaming farmers and shaming farmers is the wrong approach. Uh, and I want to see that stop. Um, in terms of the But a Taoiseach at the ICMSA AGM is no longer a headline event and Leo Varadkar knew he was not the main attraction yesterday in Limerick. Maybe the built environment. Um, I know you've Minister for Transport, David Ryan, coming here uh, later on. Uh, he's a, a good man, a brave man to be here and I hope you'll be polite with him. Like him. Um, but wouldn't you like to be in a position in a few years' time Minister, are you here to kick the hornet's nest and defend your political priorities or are you here to smooth ruffled feathers and try and persuade? I'm here to listen. I was chatting to a farmer friend I met there earlier on and that's a great opportunity to start by listening um, but also sharing your thoughts and so I'm looking forward to it. I've spent a lot of time talking to farmers and why you might get the kind of the portrayal as oh, kind of you're the, uh, you know, the opposite, the enemy, the pointing at the finger at. I'm not. I don't think I can see, think of a single instance in the last three years in government or any time in the last number of years where I would have tried to point the finger to farm and say you're the problem. The exact opposite. They are our friends. It didn't start too friendly though, but it did improve. Here's a little sample of the back and forth. We don't want to be classed as heroes. But we definitely don't want to be classed as the villains of global warming. And until such time as you and, his, and your party get behind the farmers in a real and meaningful way and understand that we're not the villains of global warming, warming we can make progress. 
if anyone can show me an example where myself or someone from our party is out there demonizing farming, then I'll be the first to apologize and say that should not happen. We are not in the business here of depicting ourselves versus farming at all. Far from, exact opposite. I want to thank the Minister for having the courage to turn up, and obviously the man of great principle, and um, I, I admire that. But all I'd ask him is maybe he just turn around and then we look at the picture behind his back now. Do you, do, you yeah. do you think, Minister, there's anything wrong with that, you know? Because, okay, maybe there are, are some emissions being emitted by the coast, whatever. But I think we're paying a very small environmental price for what we're doing. We're producing the most nutritious food in the world. Peter, can I say, I couldn't agree with you more when you said there, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I absolutely, fundamentally agree with that. Media love a good fight. They love this kind of, yeah, oh, they're against them. That sells newspapers, that fills the airwaves, that's great for ratings. But I don't think it's actually true. Because I think we all agree on that fundamental principle that as we make this change, we protect and retain the family farm. And uh, your Minister, Transport, Communication and Climate, you didn't mention the word transport one time in your address or in any of your your response is there, and transport is the number one pollutant in the world. But you said about transport, Mr. Transport, I am. And listen, what someone said to me, and this is why I would not get engaged in a, you're the problem, or someone else the problem. I'll be flying to the climate associations, and you're right. Those flight emissions are very real and very significant. We have to change transport too, we have to change aviation, which would be a really difficult one. Transport's going to be the hardest. Mr. I understand you, you bypassed the nature restoration law, which was passed outside Brussels. You seem to have conveniently neglected to mention it, and it's a thing unfounded. The Irish people do not want nature destroyed. And that's why the vote when it happened in the Dáil on the nature restoration law was 125 to 89 or 10, I can't remember the exact numbers. And, and, and I think that's real, that's not going to change. And I think it's a strength we have as a country. Let the man talk to his dinner. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> 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 you take a minute for being with us today, one would have to admire the conviction he has in his beliefs. Um, we do appreciate the opportunity for engagement. We look forward to the opportunity for engagement in, in the Tullamore area uh, in, in the near future. ICMSA President Pat McCormick there. And the mood in the room as he left, well, there was still a bit of grumbling, I think it'd be fair to say, but they were all talking and they were all engaged, which can't be a bad thing. As we speak this morning, there is an import ban on live cattle, sheep and other ruminants from Britain to the island of Ireland. It's a biosecurity measure put in place to protect the island from a new strain of blue tongue virus which has emerged in Western Europe, the Netherlands, Belgium and France. To tell us more, I'm joined by Hazel Mullins, a large animal vet based in Carrignavar County Cork. Good morning, Hazel. How are you? Good morning, Philip. How are you? What is blue tongue virus, please? Blue tongue virus is a virus that is spread by the biting midge and it affects um, ruminants, so sheep, cattle, goats, deer and also camelids, um, so your alpacas and your llamas. So it is a very severe virus, It can, especially in sheep, and um, it can cause quite 
you know, poor welfare to sheep and other animals, other ruminants. So it is a, a severe risk if it does come into the country. What are the symptoms? How would you spot it? So, as I said, sheep um, would definitely exhibit severe, more severe signs. So ulcers on their nose and their mouth and inside their mouth as well. So it could be really sore. They can have a nasal discharge, runny eyes, drooling from the mouth because of that those, that pain within the mouth. And then their head can swell, um, their lips and their tongue can swell. And that's why blue tongue, that's where it gets the name. Uh, the tongue goes blue because it goes cyanotic and just difficult breathing and really uncomfortable. And then they can get um, soreness above their hooves. So that kind of appears like a purple red ring above on their coronary band, just above their hooves. So it can be very, it can lead to lameness, respiratory distress. So yeah, not not very nice at all. And then in cattle, it can be less severe. So they can be more of a source of infection because they can maybe not exhibit as as severe signs. Um, and then the midge also, I think, prefers biting cattle as well. But the sick cow is generally, you know, high fever, nasal discharge again, the redness around the hooves, and um, they can just the crusty erosions on the mouth and the on and the muzzle as well and yeah it's it's not a very nice virus it sounds absolutely gruesome are there consequences for human health and for food safety luckily this is not a zoonotic disease so humans are not affected by this disease so that's one good thing and yeah no food safety is not affected either so it is a purely um midge to animal spread so it's not a contagious animal to animal spread. So it does need that vector of the midge to spread the virus. So if somebody has imported animals since the 1st of October, what are they being asked to do now, Hazel? Yes, so um, the Department of Agriculture, uh, so the regional veterinary um, offices are going to contact farmers that have imported animals, say they were pedigree animals or for any other reason from the UK since the 1st of October, and they're going to screen those animals for the blue tongue virus. Um, So your your, uh, department vet will be in contact with you if you have imported any of these animals. If Is it virulent? I mean, if one animal gets it, are the chances that your entire herd are going to get it? The chances of the midge population. So I suppose at this time of year, we're a little bit lucky that this has happened at this time of year because the midge would be less active. So generally they're active between April and November. So we still are at risk because it is November. And of course, with all the climate changing and different temperatures and around Europe, thing the midge population are maybe having different you know, different um, time zones, really, that they're going to be mm-hmm. active. So it is just the midge biting the animals. So if it gets into the midge population in Ireland, which we have a midge population in Ireland, it can have severe consequences because then we're trying to eradicate it from the midge and it's 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 almost impossible. Two questions in one. Is there a vaccine and is there a course of treatment for affected animals? There is a vaccine in Europe licensed. It's not against this particular strain. So this strain is uh, serotype 3. So this is the new emerging strain from the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany. And it's they don't know about cross-protection yet. Um, so currently there's no vaccine against this particular strain that is in that has been found in Kent in the UK. And the treatment, it's a very severe disease. So not the, it wouldn't really be treatable. Um, 
Tell me what you think the consequences of an import ban are now. How long is this likely to go on? How badly could it affect the industry? So the department, the so DEFRA and the UK are doing ongoing surveillance of uh, the southeast and and countries that are or counties that are near um, the mainland Europe, and they're they're also surveilling the the midge population. And at the moment, it's just that one case in the UK. There is an import ban, and there's also a temporary exclusion zone around that one case in the UK as well. So we don't know exactly how long this is going to go on. It's a emerging. Uh, situation, but hopefully, because of the time of year we are in and everything, and all and the ongoing surveillance, that we will be able to keep it out of Ireland. But we just need to be vigilant. We need to be looking out for the signs that I've just mentioned earlier mm-hmm. in our animals, and making sure that we cooperate with the department as well um, about any animals that we've imported. Um, one case in the UK doesn't sound like a serious threat, but what are the numbers in the Netherlands, Belgium, and France where this has uh, emerged? Yeah, Netherlands got a lot of cases, actually, so more so in the sheep population there, but it spread very rapidly. So we first got notified um, in September um, through um, the department notifications that there was an outbreak in in the Netherlands and it did it did take hold quite quickly. I'm not quite sure of the exact numbers. But I know there was quite a lot of farms okay. affected and quite a lot of sheep. And then it moved then across borders into Belgium and Germany as well. Hazel, thank you very much. And congratulations. You're going to take up the presidency of Veterinary Ireland from, is it next week? Yes, next Friday night. Yes. Very thank good. you, Philip. Well, yeah, I'm wait, looking forward to a good year ahead. Wait, when you have your, your feet under your desk or your hands in the glove, uh, will you come into studio and have a talk to us about the, the issues facing rural vets in Ireland? Of course, I'd love to. That'd be brilliant. Excellent. Thank you very looking much. Forward to it. Take care, Hazel. Eight and a half years ago, Graham Boyd and his brother Roger were farming side by side in Tinnahealy, County Wicklow. Roger in dairy, Graham in sheep and sucklers. Then Graham had an accident on his quad that upended not only his own life, but the lives of everyone around him, including his wife Lillian. Now he is quadriplegic, requiring 90 hours of professional care a week. As of Monday, new regulations for the use of quads come into force to try and prevent others having accidents like his. Graham wanted to tell his story to Countrywide to show how one tiny moment of lapsed concentration can change everything. We were cutting silage. Uh, The contractor had arrived and I was heading down to make sure he was going to the right field. That's when it happened. I wasn't in a particular rush. I think myself that I wasn't going terribly fast. The quad just went up on a bit of a bank and turned over. And I'm not 100% sure what way it went, but it rolled over on top of me. And I was lying there on the ground under it. Well, it rolled off me and then it righted itself and just kept on going left me there. I think I was quite calm about it because I just couldn't move, I couldn't do anything. Probably didn't realise how bad it was there and then. Wouldn't have been much of a bank, just the side of a lane, just a a foot high. So it really didn't take much for its centre of balance to end up in the wrong place? No. 
not, not much at all. Which is worrying, isn't it, when you see the way people throw these things around? We do tend to treat them with a little bit of contempt, I suppose. Did you ever worry, Lily, in the way that you saw him driving around the place on it, or did you think he was a careful driver? He has driven for years and never really had very many accidents, really. Did you? <laughs> well, a few, a few, but nothing ever serious, nothing yeah. that required hospitalisation, so... I get the impression from the conversation that we're having, though, that you didn't consider yourself a reckless driver. You hadn't done something dangerous. This was all just very ordinary, and it resulted in an accident. Pretty much, yeah. It was a routine day, you know. It was silage was going to be cut. Go down and tell them which field to start in. Whatever happened, happened. I imagine it's not like ripples in the water. It's like a bit of a shockwave. It is a bit of a shockwave. (laughs) But it has all the ripples then because it affects me, our children, you know, Graham's brother and family as well, his mother. Everybody has been affected by it. What keeps you smiling? You're a very happy person. I've always been cheery, I think. If something happens, you know, you just pick up the pieces and keep going. And the two of us are a bit like that, I think. Right from day one, it was like, well, he's, you know, in intensive care. Graham's not dead. He's still alive. Let's keep going. Plough on. Well, thank God the accident didn't knock that cheeriness out of you. Because it it must help, given your circumstances. Yeah. Days aren't long enough. That's a great thing to say now. Yeah. Yeah. There's just, there's too much to do and too many things to see to... What have you learned about yourself that you didn't know about yourself before the accident? I've learned patience. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Why do you need patience? I have to wait for someone to help me all the time to to do pretty much anything. There's some stuff I can do on my own, but the vast bulk of stuff I have have to have help to do it. Just mundane tasks like brushing your teeth and my family in the wider circle, would not have considered me a very patient person. (laughs) (laughs) You're nodding politely there. He he never had patience, really. Um, Well, a little bit, maybe. But since this, he's totally, yeah, accepted it. You are... Like a bit of a Zen master. You're a person, from the moment I walked in this room, you you exude a sense of chill and calm about you. If there's something you can do nothing about, then what can you do only accept it and keep going? and Offer yeah, it up, absolutely. Offer, yeah. And you just have to... Life's for living. You just have to keep going. The government coming down tough now on people who are riding around their quads without helmets and without taking the right kind of precautions. Is this the right approach? Well, it'll all help. I'm just not sure it's enough. Who's going to police it? What are the penalties going to be for not complying? Maybe roll bars might be more important. They don't seem to be on the horizon at all. What do you say to those people who are going to be doing exactly the same thing as you, just nipping up the lane to tell a guy what hedge to cut or what field to take silage out of and doing it with a little bit too much haste? It's the most normal and natural thing in the world. Maybe just think again, because like I say, it's not just you you're going to affect, it's everybody around you. (sighs) 
days aren't long enough. Isn't that the most incredible thing to say for a man who finds himself in that circumstance? My thanks to both Graham and Lillian Boyd for welcoming me into their home and having that conversation. Uh, Quad safety on farms, obviously a significant cause of concern with 11 recorded fatalities in the last decade. Quads, obviously very handy, but in an attempt to make them safer, these new regulations come into play from Monday. They're going to apply to all work-related use of quads, including on farms. It's going to be enforced by the HSA uh, and there's plenty more information on their website, hsa.ie. It basically boils down to two measures, wearing a helmet, completing a training course. And with, excuse me, Monday's deadline looming on the horizon, farmers, foresters, greenkeepers, gardeners, anybody who uses quad bikes in their work are attending training courses. And Brenda Donoghue went along to TMTS training in Ballyconnell County Cavan and spoke to people on that course. First, Paul McCaughey, the training instructor, took her through the details. We started to run through the pre-start checks, safety checks of the quads, and then we started learning the guys how to drive the quad in level ground. Once we had that done, we were happy. We, we brought it further. We brought them into some rough terrain, so we had them on some slopes, rough terrain, and we had got up and down hills. And then the lastly, the practical part is we learnt the boys how to uh, load them and unload them off a trailer safely. What are the red flags for you in terms of safety? But the most common one that you see when you're doing practice assessment is lack of observation. People not looking where they're going in reverse, driving forward. Sometimes going through a, a muddy area, too slow, gets them stuck. So they have to drive it a, a little bit faster, not too much, but just a little bit. Reset them as slow as possible, but as fast as necessary. Right, gentlemen, what we're going to do now is do the ascending and descending of these deep hills and slopes. I want you all to put on your helmets and make sure they all are fastened correctly. There's a badly fastened helmet. It's no good to anybody. It has to be fastened correctly on your head. We think about our own safety. Paul, what do the specs of new helmets have to be at? All these helmets have to be a ATV or motorcycle approved helmet. It has to be the fishing BS numbers or EN rated numbers on them. So we're in the practical assessment area and we have the quad and we have the diggers and we have the whole lot and the course is ongoing in the background. Get yourself onto the bike nice and steady. Look at the slope, look for any obstacles, make sure you have a good runoff. What is your name, sir, and why are you here today? I'm Aidan, I'm from Cavan. I am Suckland Farman. I've been using the quad since 1989. It kind of replaces a tractor on the farm and we're here to try and get our cert and probably learn something along the way and we've learned quite a bit here today. Different things as regards the actual the workings of the quad on steep slopes. We're in Cavan which is a drumland country there's always either a hill or a hollow so it's perfect for that kind of work. Uh, Paul is teaching us today exactly how to use your body to make the quad that bit safer to, to operate in and what I found with the quad was if you have a bull with the with the sucklers or with the animals it's always that bit safer to be on the quad. I never check cattle on feet. I always go on the quad but in general farming has gone very very hazardous it's the most dangerous job in the country every course that that's available i think it's well worthwhile doing it because you'll always learn something <laughs> uh, my name's james griffin <laughs> not a cavern accent james no not at all i'm essex boy i'm afraid from essex to cavern explain well i married an irish lass and so so we moved back to back to ireland because she wanted to be back in the home country basically and it is the best move we ever made and now 
I'm here getting my skills up with quad bikes to take us forward in, in forestry. That's what we're using them for at the moment. So you work for a forestry company, that's why you're here? Yeah, we, um, Vion is the company that I work for. Currently I'm, I'm getting crew together to reforest areas in the west. What trees are you planting? Anything. Um, Cyclus spruce is obviously a common forestry tree, but we're going for native broadleaf species as well. This machine this is our tool this is our kind of workhorse our mule to put all our young trees around the, the hills and the woods to to get them into where we need to be that way the guys aren't breaking their backs carrying stuff up the mountains and with the help of Paul I'm not breaking my back falling off of it you know so <laughs> it's getting it's just getting the skills up to do the job safely so I've got industries because I, I love them but also now getting out and replanting is is a wonderful thing it, it really is so now we've got a throttle, we have to make sure this is working and it's working freely. Give that a couple of presses. All right, always make sure the throttle comes back into the idle position. What's your name? Michael Heary. Michael, you're from Cavan. Yeah, Ballycon, Templeport, Proud. You're a farmer? Yes. Tell me about your farm. Farm of 120 acres, 100 odd beef cattle at the moment. Was dairying for years. I had no staff, no help. No help. So you couldn't get staff? No, my children were reared and they had all good jobs and I said I'm not going to tie them down to it so I let them at it. Was that an emotional decision nearly going from dairy to beef? It probably was. Like when you're 40 years doing one thing, you find another challenge. And I wanted an easier challenge and my wife had retired and I said, well, I'm going to retire too. So that was it. Tears were shed, but look at we're here and we're here, thank God. And you're getting your certification for the quad. Do you use a quad in the farm? I have a quad for the last 20 years. Can you remember your first one? Yes. A nice little Suzuki 250. Brilliant little quad. Two-wheel drive. All I needed, gathering up cows, gathering up cattle. Do you find a quad essential to get around yes, the farm Yes, I'm now? not able to walk anymore. I have issues with my hips and knees. They're going to have to be removed at some stage in not too distant future, and I'm looking forward to it. The vast majority of the farm is half a mile from the house, and I'm not fit for walking a half a mile every day or twice a day, so that's it. Quad goes there and brings me back, so I'm happy. Right, now we've come to the end of our practical tests and our practical assessments. I hope everybody uh, uses their quad as versatile as they can. It's going to leave life a lot easier for people, and I wish you all the best. Thank you, Paul. Ah, indeed. Paul McCaughey ending Brenda's report there. HSA.ie for more information. That's our lot for this week. Amanda in Paso Divine handed out the helmets. Mark Dwyer kept it between the ditches. Brenda Donoghue checked our speed. Until the same time next week, have a great weekend and thank you for listening. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player.